This is the Italian American Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping Italian Americans learn about their heritage. We talk to experts, authors, and everyday Italian Americans on all things Italian, from traditions, culture, food, genealogy, travel, and more. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and I have with me my co-host, Dolores Alfieri. And today we have the first of a two-part episode with Tony Reale, host of ESPN's Around the Horn, who we'll introduce to you momentarily. But before we do, we got a couple other things to cover. Dolores, how you doing? Doing great, Anthony. So we got to go to the Around the Horn studios, right, yep. to do this interview, which was terrific. And I think that our listeners are going to hear this when they start listening to the episode, but Tony is really welcoming. And he... At the end of the episode, in part two, you'll hear me tell him how he's like, he's like all the best nonas I've ever known, (laughs) (laughs) which he takes as a high compliment because he was so concerned about, are we comfortable, right? Did we have everything we needed? He gave us a tour of the studios. I mean, he was so gracious to us. He really was, yeah. So before we intro him and, you know, get the episode rolling, let's just thank some of our listeners for leaving us iTunes reviews. Yay! Thank you, At The Hot Iron, a longtime listener. We really appreciate it. And Anthony, thank you so much for the feedback. So if you're one of those longtime listeners who hasn't gotten around yet to leaving us a review please take some time to do so. You may think, oh, what does my little review matter? But Paisani, it matters. So help us out here. Also, please consider signing up for our newsletter. We have some great new initiatives we're going to roll out, and we really want you to be the first to hear about them. So you can connect with us via email. Just go to italianamericanpodcast.com and click on join us. All right. And I also want to mention that we do write blog posts on our off episode weeks. Our last post I wrote was called, Can We Turn Off the Work Ethic as Italian-Americans? Do We Need To? And I wrote this post because I got inspired by our guest today, Tony Reale, who's such a hard worker, which you'll hear about in the interview. But it really made me think about that. That's how all of our guests and really like our family members and everyone that we know Mm -hmm. has that same work (laughs) ethic about them. So I wrote a little bit about it. I'd love to hear your comments and thoughts on it. We've already gotten a few, so check that out at italianamericanpodcast.com. Just click on blog. All right, so before I introduce Tony and kick off this interview, I'd like to offer a word from our sponsor, the National Italian American Foundation. I'm John Viola, president of the National Italian American Foundation, proud supporters of the Italian American Podcast. At NIAF, we know there's nothing more important than family, and we invite you to be a part of ours. We work hard to protect our great heritage, to promote the Italian language, to build stronger ties between Italy and the United States, and to serve as your voice in our nation's capital. Most importantly, with over a million dollars a year in scholarships and grants, we provide young Italian Americans help in earning a solid education and becoming future leaders for our community. To find out more about how your support serves the community, visit us online at www.niaf.org and become a part of the NIAF family. All right. So our guest for today, Tony Reale, joined ESPN in July of 2000 as a researcher and writer for ESPN's fast-paced sports quiz show, Two Minute Drill, with host Kenny Main. In September 2001, Reale became a researcher for ESPN's Pardon the Interruption, which is a daily show, and that evolved into an on-air appearance on the same show. And his presence eventually grew to have a segment on the show. In February 2004, Reale was named host of Around the Horn. It's a Monday to Friday, 5 p.m. show 
which he had been a fill-in in the past and a guest panelist, and now he's basically running the show. And Dolores and I got to see this. It's so many things going on. He's got press people in all different cities that he's dealing with on the show, so it's really awesome. Mm -hmm. Prior to joining ESPN, Tony was a sportscaster for 90.7 FM at Fordham University in the Bronx. He served as the voice of the men's football and basketball teams and hosting New York City's longest-running sports call-in show. He also served as a beat reporter for the New York Yankees, Mets, Giants, and Jets. And in May 2000, wrote for New York City's WB Channel 11. He was born in Staten Island and received a Bachelor of Arts degree in both communications and history from Fordham University. And the quote that we selected for this show was one from Muhammad Ali, which goes, The fight is won or lost far away from witnesses, behind the lines, in the gym, and out there on the road long before I dance under those lights. And the reason that we selected that quote is because people talk about Italians, great food, big families, and all of this stuff, but there's a lot of work that goes into that. And Dolores and I talk about it a lot. You know, someone's got to cook, someone's got to bring the family together. It's not necessarily... Someone's got to make the podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's not like always all as glamorous as it looks. People do a lot of work behind the scenes, and we want to celebrate that today through this episode and with our two-part series here with Tony. So with that, we're going to jump into the interview, and we're literally going to jump right in. You're going to hear a little bit. It's going to sound like it's cut off, but you're going to hear kind of our pre-recording. We had a mutual friend that hosted a big party in the city for Mike Piazza, and Tony was there, so he's starting right off by just talking about that. Cracking us up, yeah. Yeah, cracking <laughs> us up. So here we go. Enjoy. So the idea that there was, was a, a get-together at a Brooklyn bar. Right. Bodina was there, made plenty of sense. Did I tell you that... Um... That it was all men, that event? That had just, it was, like, all it men. was, and if we're recording, this is great, I'm happy to talk about this. It was yeah, like true. something I could never explain to somebody. Yeah. You know, you ever walk, to, you, you go for a walk in the park and there's a dog park and, and you could smell the dog pheromones, <laughs> all right? I walked into this bar, it was called yeah, uh, Bamonte's in Brooklyn, yeah. and it smelled like aqua velva, brill cream, and it was just man kissing man is all it was, and it was phenomenal. But it was like a vortex of Paisan. And I, I couldn't explain it. I couldn't yeah, explain it to anybody who wasn't there. No, I mean, I love that you just described it because that's how I pictured it. I was yeah. like, that, I love that it was men only. And I just, I wish somehow I could have been like a fly on the wall. Yeah, there, my, I don't know why I had to be men only. I would have been fine if it had a little bit of <laughs> less, less, it was great. Yeah. Of course, great. A little bit less uh, energy like that. You know, it was, it was primal. You talked about DiCaprio walking in the room. We were at the gala. I was standing by the front door when Piazza was about to walk in. First of all, there were people outside, right, who weren't coming into the gala, like crowding around him for autographs. And when he walked in, it was like the room, like it was like. Well, he's a big deal. He's Mike a big Piazza deal in New York. Arrived. And as you guys know, being from the air, but he, I mean, he's, a, he's a huge deal in New York. And it's not just wrapped up in him being a good player and him being, you know, an Italian name goes a long way in New York and that's that's a wonderful thing. It's yeah. a beautiful thing that that's still the case. But I, I said it when I was up there introducing him because I thought about it for a second. I remember exactly where I was for a lot of sporting events. It's just something that, that stays with me because I'm in the business. But I absolutely remember where I was when he hit a home run on September 21st, 2001. It was a home run that gives you chills. It was the first sporting event in our city, and we were grieving so much. 
and there's this guy. I mean, he hits the ball to the moon to win a game, and it was a moment that every sports fan can relate to. That's one of those moments. So the city will remember that for as long as they remember sports. They really will. And honestly, I I know Mike a little bit, and I'm sure at some point he's going to be tempted to run for office for something because he's politically minded in a lot of ways. And he could do it in Miami where he lives now. He could do it. In, uh, in New York as well. He, he certainly would have people who would oh, remember yeah. him fondly. I would, I would agree with that, yeah. We'd like to start with how we usually start with our guests, which is basically, like, tell us a little bit about growing up Italian-American, you know, your family, your parents, mm-hmm. your ancestors. What's your personal Italian-American How story? funny was it at that gala, by the way, mm-hmm. to, to see the video tributes they put for all the people who were going to be honored? And... It, I mean, you're in it. It's the oh, here's the boat. Okay, yeah. here's the shot. Of, wait, here, here's the family. Everybody's wearing black. Okay, look at the look at the hook on that nose. And here's the boat. Oh, look at this shot. It's the corner in Brooklyn. I know this shot. And everybody's family had like the same. I mean, this was the New York gala, so everybody had the same experience. Beautiful. And you heard it over and over and over again. Yeah, it's incredible. Somebody said Williamsburg, and then they said the word Kono, and, and my great grandfather's name was Kono, and. I don't know if this is a real story or if it's an apocryphal story, but outside of the village in Italy, there are more Konos in this one neighborhood, this one street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, than anywhere else in the world. And it's just like that's your tie. That, that's your tie back to there. I loved the way I grew up in a lot of ways. Uh-huh. You know, and, and like everybody who sits in this chair for you, I'm sure, it's about food and it's about dancing. It's about family, of course. My family upbringing was, was, was interesting in a couple of ways, though. Let's start at the beginning, at least. One of, one of my favorite stories is how one of my first family members came to this country. I've, I've told this story at a, at a function before for NIAF. And it was about, of course, the earthquake in, in Reggio di Calabria mm-hmm. and, and Sicily in 1908. And my great-grandfather, Giuseppe Di Pietro, was in that earthquake. And he was in the rubble for three days. Wow. And he was pulled out by a woman with a dog who was walking three days after, and his whole family died. And he was, at that time, I think he was nine years old. I think he was born in 1899. I was looking at his paperwork recently from when he came to this country. And under nationality or ethnicity, it said Italian dark, is what it said. I I remember seeing that. And it was was yet another photo that was right in those tributes, you know? It was the photos that you're seeing, and you just picture them, right? Five foot six, slim built. And great hair, and it's, it's got, it's so shiny, and it's perfect. And his face looks like the boot, you know? He's got the, you know, the schnozzle that goes that way. He came to this country, I think, under the guise that he had an uncle here, or something like that. They may have just been like, you're an orphan. Yeah. You got nothing, you're going nine years old. I think he wound up coming in 1911, maybe three years after that. So maybe when he was a little bit older than that. And his story is the same story as a lot of people. You know, he got here, he had nobody. He was uh, in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and then at some point, I think he was called McGillicuddy, which is an Irish name, as you know, which is a way to, I think, get involved in a business that a lot of the Irish were involved in, which happened to do with alcohol, which happened to do during a particular time in this country's history where it wasn't the most legal thing, and, um, and then he was a longshoreman. Uh, but to come to this country... Following the earthquake, he was from Comune de San Giovanni, mm-hmm. the absolute tip of Calabria, and to come with nothing and to build a family that dates 
you know, in this country now, you know, 100 years is wonderful. But my immediate, and I, I knew my grandpa Joe DiPietro until I was 15 years old, and his wife, my, my great-grandma Celia DiPietro, who was, spent time both in Italy and in New York and going back a couple of times until I was 23. I mean, she passed at almost 100 years old 15 years ago. But one of the great things about my family upbringing is my grandparents, my two grandfathers especially, were best friends growing up. Oh, wow. In the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Wow. We've got some great stories. And for me, as a kid, seeing that, seeing that relationship, seeing, I mean, here's what it was, honestly, Anthony. It was the pinochle table at every Sunday dinner <laughs> where these two old men, my two grandfathers, were playing with each other as partners. And they were playing my father and my godfather, right. my uncle or my other uncle. And there was no way the young men were going to ever beat the old guys. They were kicking each other under the table. They were saying these words, these certain tips. You know, they were yeah. cheating like nobody's business <laughs> because they've been playing the same game for 65 years, yeah. which is an incredible thing. So, and here's, here's a real quick story. So there are these two guys who probably dropped out of school. I, I, th I think sixth grade was where Grandpa Frank got to, and, and maybe sixth or seventh is where Grandpa Jimmy, whose real name was Vincenzo, mm -hmm. but... That sounded like Jimmy when Grandma Philomena said it to the, the people at Ellis Island. Oh, and stuff that would well, and he was born in the States, Grandpa Jimmy, but um, I, when they were doing the paperwork. So they're playing baseball together, and Grandpa Frank was a great baseball player. And, you know, it was the idea like he could get signed by the Yankees, and then up oh, there's a war. And then you hurt yourself in the war, and that was yeah. where it went. But they're playing sandlot ball, and he hits a ball probably into the 300, 400 feet away into a group of people, and it hits a girl, and she has to be taken to the hospital. Turned out to be my grandpa Jimmy brings the girl to the hospital and comes back and he goes, you should really go check on that girl. You broke her nose. And he goes to the hospital and that's my grandma Marie. That's how they met? That's how, that's one of the, one of the, yeah, one of the stories. I love stories They like also, that. they also then met at a dance and they were dancing their whole lives. They, they were tremendous dancers. That's uh, one um, way to do it, just break the girl's nose. <laughs> you fall in love. Oh, yeah. Um, and her nose the rest of her life. When, when, when my wife met her, I was like, that's not an Italian nose. I go, that's not her nose. <laughs> um, and I keep a picture of them dancing in my phone. Just so now I, I'm, I'm gathering both sides. You're full Italian. Yes. Sides. yes. So were both sides, your great-grandparents came over? Or yeah, great-grandparents. Right? Um, okay. Yeah, great-grandparents. So it's uh, uh, a lot of Calabresi and right. Nabi. Don, maybe some Piacenza in there as well. There. Yeah, a uh, little Piacenza in there as well. Uh, I think, um, yeah, my grandmother's family was a little bit further from the north, so one of the other meetings after the broken nose, after a dance where he was a bartender, was, okay, we're going to come home, okay, how many ravioli can you eat? Is what my grandfather is trying to brag to my, my grandmother that he can eat, you know, yeah. he can eat eight ravioli, he can eat ten ravioli. And my grandmother looks at him and goes, Hey, 30 ravioli, because she makes smaller ravioli in the north than they do in the south, and that was that was some of the, one of the, it's <laughs> a crazy story. So they were really close, because you, you said your grandparents grew up together. Growing up, my father pushed my mother in a stroller. Wow. Oh, wow. This was in, um, wait, wait, growing this up? was in Manhattan. So growing up, my father at age six was pushing a two-year-old, my mother, in a stroller. My mother, oh, her twin brother. Were... That's how long they'd known each other? Right. That would have been in uh, Manhattan at that point. And then my mother's family moved to Brooklyn for a little bit. My father's family moved to Staten Island. And then 15 years later, the both families happened to be on Staten Island at the same time. And I think there was a little bit of a, hmm, oh, they saw each other at the supermarkets. And then, oh, what's Joey doing now? Oh, he's working on a campaign. 
you know, maybe you should stop by at the printing press that Jimmy runs and maybe get some copies there when Madeline's working there. And then my father, Joseph, and my mother, Madeline, met. And Dad went to my mother's prom, and then they were married soon after. That's and then incredible. Rosie came, and then I came, and then Michael came, then John Paul came, and then Christina came. Because you're one of five. Yes. Right. And yeah. where are you? are you the baby? I am number two. I am the oldest boy. Rosemary's a year older than me. Okay. So you're, you're talking a lot about your family, and, you know, we, we do talk about this a lot on the show. Of course, we're so proud of how far we've come in our families, right, and what our, our grandparents or parents sacrificed and where they started. So yeah. you're talking about your great-grandfather, you know, being pulled out of rubble yeah. of an earthquake, literally. And now we're sitting here in a studio in Times Square where you just recorded a show that millions of people watched. Yeah. So that's a big stretch of success there. So what does your family think about your success? When you say it like that, it's, yeah, it almost makes, it almost, you know, makes me want to cry. I mean, it's, it's everything that I did today... I feel like everybody in my family could have done, honestly. I mean, this is, this is what we like to do. We like to kind of, I'm a host of a TV show. What does the host do? I'm supposed to know the, the stats. I'm supposed to know the stories. I'm supposed to ask the questions. I'm also supposed to host my, my panelists, the people I work with, the colleagues on the show, make them feel comfortable. I explained this to you earlier. My job, I think, above all, is to make them forget they're on TV and have the most natural human moments we could have on TV. If I'm at home watching a show on ESPN or a show on ABC for Good Morning America, a segment that I would do, I want the people at home to, hey, it's got to be entertaining because right. this, is, this is why we're on TV, to sure. entertain people. Right. We, we're telling stories, and if you're telling stories, you want them to be relatable, natural, and kind of unpredictable. That, that, that's kind of one way I, I see, about, see this. The three, the three rules of storytelling, relatable, natural, mm -hmm. But unpredictable. Mm -hmm. The unpredictable is what makes a story, you know, really move because yes. you can't tell a story people already know. Right. Mm -hmm. But you also need to tell a story that people can can feel, can relate to. And I feel like this is something my, my a lot of people in my family could be doing all these years. But I think, sure, my grandparents when they were alive were huge fans of the show. They like to see Anthony get a haircut more often than he probably needed <laughs> in the early years of the show. And then I grew a beard, and that that was that was another thing altogether. But uh. It was it was always sweet. I was talking got... to Anthony before we walked in, and, and I was saying that I was wondering how your family and like, you know takes your success because I was saying to him, I don't know. At least where I grew up, it felt like for Italians, especially like Italian immigrants, like the consummate thing they could want their child to do is be on television. Yeah. I, I was saying to him like I could have been like Madame the next like Madame Curie, but my mother would still be like, why don't you? Yeah, no, I don't. It's fun. I mean, it's fun when we we get together and everybody, extended family, gets to talk about it. But I mean, our family is proud of proud of what everybody's everybody. doing. You know, I, I was just thinking about this. When we won an Emmy award, I gave it to my mom and dad, mm -hmm. and they put it on the mantle above the fireplace. And I got home and I saw it. I'm like, oh, there it is. And my brother John Paul got home and looked at that and he said, oh, hmm, okay. <laughs> And then he came home, his next trip home, and he brought back a flag that was flown at Space Station Mir. Because my brother is a chemical engineer, but he was a rocket scientist for NASA at the time. Oh my God. So there's a flag that was flown in space <laughs> right in front of that award that I got that looks like something you would put a toilet <laughs> roll a toilet bowl on, <laughs> uh, toilet paper on. It's like, oh, um, we're happy to celebrate all, all of our, our family's triumphs, and that's what being a family is all about. And yeah. you know what? I mean, 
where where we have to be here when 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 things aren't going so well too, and that's that's you know, being a father now, is something I see and I feel so much more. Yeah, you're very busy. I'm assuming you have a high-powered job, busy schedules. Same with your wife. How do you plan to raise your daughter with the same Italian? It's the most important thing in my life. Well, I was raised raise Francesca in the way that my wife and I see fit. That is the reason why I'm on this earth. I love kids. I used to be one. <laughs> I still want to be one. And I want basketball team number of kids, God willing, you know? Wow. And I want all girls too, Dolores. I mean, I, yeah, I really do. I really do. Bless you. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, just my life absolutely changed, you know, a year and a half ago when Francesca was born. Getting married to Sammy was the best decision I ever made in my life, but... I was also able to still stay within myself, I feel, mm. while becoming a greater person with another person. Adding Francesca, adding a child, and, and every parent can relate to this. Well, here's what it was, okay? It was a 47-hour labor. Right? She was two weeks late, and it was 47 hours worth of labor with Francesca, which tells you how good of a resort that my, my wife had in there, right? That the baby wanted to stay so long. <laughs> then... We're in it, and we're in the moment, and I'm at Sammy's right shoulder, and I'm looking at her, I'm like, all right, let's pull together, let's get through this. And while we're in it, I hear, and I start crying, because that's my baby's first word. And Sammy looks up at me, and she goes, what are you doing? <laughs> and I say, babe, I'm crying. This, this, is, this is our baby's first words. This is how, she's crying, I'm crying. Yeah. And she looks at me and she goes, that was the suction vacuum. <laughs> That's great. My first parenting mistake. <laughs> I, I mistook my daughter for a vacuum cleaner. You have to tell oh. her that one day. And this is just a way to explain, as all parents can relate to, nothing can prepare you for the vulnerability that you're going to mm. feel. And I feel that vulnerability every day. Yeah. Now, every day, ever since. And... You asked what being Italian means to me, and I talked to you about family, and we could always talk about food, and we could always talk about, you know, great sense of style and, and hair. But for me, it's about feeling. Mm. It's 100% about feeling. Earlier. I'm an emotional person. I always have been. That is so far off the charts in the last 21 months of my life. So far off the charts. Yeah. I'm crying at Hallmark commercials now <laughs> on a daily basis, and I have to... <laughs> Use that power for good and not evil in my own head, you know? Because I can get very, very emotional about other people's issues in life. Their best things, but also right. I can be very happy for, for people, my, my, my friends and my family. I can also get very sad for these things. And being a father has made me hyper aware of that, but it's also made me know that this is how I want to go through this journey with Sammy and Francesca especially, is that compassion and empathy has to be number one you have yeah. to have these feelings you have to know the power of these feelings you have to allow for these feelings the good ones and the ones that aren't so good and you have to be able to navigate life while those feelings direct some of your direction i guess right. yeah. what's interesting like you said i mean just like all of us we're hard working i mean i think it's in our blood we're hot we hustle mm -hmm. i mean we can get a little bit into tony's career and how he started and he got to be host but when you had francesca yeah I think we all struggle with this a bit. Is like we're hard workers, but now we also want to raise our family. So there's got to be something. I'll be 100% honest with you. I'm working hard in different ways now. Yeah. 
but my work is all directed towards the family, toward, towards Francesca. Right. I, I mean, you saw Pablo when he was here filming the show, and he's filled in for me as host probably 10 or 15 times in the last year. I've taken 15 days off. I didn't take a day off for the first 9, 10 years I was hosting the show. The house burned down. I was, I had my wardrobe. I went to, the, went did the show that day. You know, yeah. this this was a point of pride for my family. We don't take days off. Right. I mean, I had a schedule that I could maintain, and we had times when the show happened to be off because ESPN would show bowl games. Okay, well that's a fine enough time for me to take my vacation, or they would show the Little League World Series for a week in August. It wasn't like I wasn't going on vacation, but I wouldn't take a show off. I mean. You have to respect all your work, no matter what right. field you're in. But in, in the business I'm in, front-facing like that, there's somebody putting on the show for the first time on any given day. Mm. An Italian said that, Joe DiMaggio. Somebody's coming out here watching me play for the first time. i got to give it mm. yeah. my 100% effort. And that's how I've always treated it. But now I'm giving my 100% effort and also being aware that I have to give 100% somewhere else. Right. So much of life is rolling with things. And this has been true for me in my own personal story. It's got to be true in my own family history. My, my great-grandfather rolled with it. Mm. <laughs> the earth rolled, <laughs> knocked down his house, and he went on a boat and he went to New York without any family. And he got here and he rolled with life and he figured out how to navigate. I was telling you my story when we were in makeup earlier, right? I mean, the first job I got with Party Interruption, ESPN show that I worked on for 13 years, I was hired to be the show researcher. I wasn't hired to be the host or the sidekick of the show. I had, I had written trivia questions for my previous job for ESPN, which, which is a track and a trajectory where if you're a writer, you can you know, write for TV. You might become a producer in the future. But I accepted a job as a researcher for part of the interruption just because I thought it was a pretty good opportunity. I said yes, and that opened the door for me. And that's something that I always take with me, you know, saying yes. Saying yes more in life Absolutely. is a good thing. It opens yeah. doors for you. No, it closes them. So I said yes to taking a job as a researcher, which at the time may have been not a, it may be an lateral move for somebody who theoretically wanted to get on air at some point. But I became the researcher a week before we went to air. I was having some fun with the guys, giving them information. They liked the give and take I was giving them. I was made the sidekick of the show just a couple days before we went to air. Stat boy was what they called me. It's what they called me on TV. It's what happened for 14 years. They called me Stat Boy. I loved every second of it. That, that's my, those are my roots on television. Those yeah. are my guys, Kornheiser and Wilbon. So saying yes, they opened that door. I got a phone call on a Sunday night while I was watching the Super Bowl saying we have nobody to fill in and host around the horn for the day. The show that was a spinoff to PTI. I was hosted by my friend Max Kellerman for the first season of the show. I filled in for one day. I had one suit. I put it on, sweated through it. <laughs> Got through that show where we talked about a Super Bowl. We talked about Janet Jackson's wardrobe malfunction. Mm. And they said, can you fill in tomorrow too? And I had to buy a different tie. And by Wednesday, <laughs> I was out of clothes. That's rolling with life. Right. And there's so many examples in my life, career-wise, where that was the case. But it was also true did, in my own personal did life. Did you always want to do this? Since I was five years old. As, long, as far back as, as I can remember, I always wanted to be a sportscaster. Really? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I had a Fisher-Price microphone in front of a TV saying, this is Anthony Real talking about the Nike. <laughs> Absolutely. Always wanted to do it. I love that. Well, you know, it, it seems to me that in order to live life that way where, you know, you, you can say yes to everything and you can also jump in, you have to have some sort of innate trust uh, in yourself and uh, an innate confidence in yourself. 
So where do you think that comes from? And would you agree with what I just said as well? (laughs) (laughs) I I think confidence is about 90% of what a lot of people who perform for a living do. I will say curiosity for me is a, is a huge thing in just about all things in life. Having that natural curiosity, scratching the things that itch you, yeah. exploring, educating yourself, asking questions, finding out how you feel about something, and then asking those questions again. That's what I was taught in high school and college. Those are the <laughs> Jesuits right there, right? Yeah. You know? yes, and that's exactly. what I do in my own personal life on a daily basis when it comes to decisions about my career. That's how I feel about my own you know, greater thoughts on the world. Right. Let me ask you a question. Did you, I mean, you're a people person. Mm. You seem, I mean, you're just a regular. You know, people say we're going to see this TV star and... You know, it doesn't seem like you change anything from off the camera to on the camera. I mean, so is it is it kind of... That's nice? the only way I can do it, Anthony. It really is. I mean, yeah. I, I, I like to perform. I like to ham it up. I don't have an ability outside of being who I am. I can't, I can't stay in a character or if I, if I was right. being asked to do that on my show or something like that. I giggle too much. I smile too much. <laughs> I'm comfortable with where I am while that sometimes has, you know, sometimes for me it's difficult because I do grip things very tight, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. You know, I, I was explaining, you know, for Good Morning America, I have to get up yeah. very early in the morning. I don't sleep well the night before. And it's not really about performance. It's just about, you know, I'm ready to go. I don't, right. you know, want to let people down. I, I, have a, I have a lot of that in me, which isn't the best characteristic, I would say. I mean, it, it works on some ways, but it also takes a little bit out of me, you know, constantly not allowing myself to... Hey, when I had kidney stones last year, and I had a had a garbage pail next to the set, and it was at any moment I could pass a kidney stone at work, yeah. you know, some people would say you maybe should sit this one out for a little bit, and and I didn't have it in me to say no, I'm not gonna not gonna go to work today. Where do you think that comes from? Oh, that's yeah, that's how I was raised, definitely, yeah. definitely how I was raised. I I have a job that doesn't feel like work. Mm, right. There's something in me that says if I take this day off. If I take this day for granted, if I don't exude the, the energy that I want my show to have, I want my show to feel like, and I've always felt like this is an important dynamic, this is all of us talking in the family. It's a family dinner, it's a, it's a barroom discussion, it's a dorm room, you know, it's a foursome in a golf, it's got that easy breezy appeal. Some days you don't have that in you, but I have to have it for 21 minutes and 30 seconds. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is something that we talk about a lot on the show, and, you know, the idea of pride and, like, what you do, and really, even if no one's watching, it doesn't matter, because that's just what we do, it's probably because our families passed it down to us. You know, I mean, listen, all cultures have hardworking people, but I just remember the, my favorite story that you always tell is when your friend tells you, told you to run away. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, I wrote, so I wrote... I spent a couple of years writing a memoir basically about my family's history and stuff like that. And one of the stories that we tell a lot, that comes up a lot, comes a lot it's just indicative of growing up Italian-American, is I was upset with my family. I, you know, my parents were really old-fashioned, very strict. And I was with one of my very American friends after school, and she says to me, I mean, God, your parents don't let you out of the house. You know, you're never allowed to do anything just because you're a girl. And she obviously had no concept of, of what home was like for me and she said to me why don't you just run away and it was one of those moments in life where you're you're like I am something different than everybody else because 
and you realize it's because you're Italian, you know, because you grow it, you're growing up a certain way where it was so laughable. I mean, I remember I just looked at her and said, like, that would be disrespectful. <laughs> I, would, I would never do that to my family. Well, let me ask you, if you had a chance to do it over again, would mm-hmm. you do it differently? Would, would you? Would In you... terms of running away? Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. No. Would, if, that, would honestly, you answer that question differently? No, mm-hmm. I would have answered it exactly the same yeah. way. Absolutely. And it was a very adult moment for me mm-hmm. when I was not, I, I, like, I just became an adult yesterday, I feel like. I'm such yeah. a late bloomer. But, like, you know, I, hey, I don't think I, that you I don't think we're ever completely adults, honestly. I mean. Especially and, when you start having kids. Well, yeah. I mean, it is. But it's, it's, it's constantly about evolving and adapting. That's yeah. life. That's... But it's the ethics that we were raised with. We find again and again this theme comes up with our, with our guests and in yeah. our conversations. There's up, a yeah. work ethic. You know, we're generalizing, of course. I mean, there's yeah. probably some Italian-Americans who don't work very hard. But in general, it was almost like if you were going to make it here, which by now, if you're here this long, you've, your family's made it. You had to have a certain work mm-hmm. ethic, mm-hmm. and we seem to share that as a people. Yeah. And you seem to be saying that you have it like full tilt. Kidney <laughs> stones and a garbage next to you is pretty badass. <laughs> but I'll direct <laughs> it back. I'll direct it back home, though. I mean, for mm-hmm. me, I, I have mainline my day so I can get to Francesca and and get to a place where where that is my priority and that's where my focus is. Yeah, absolutely. I hope you found the first part of our two-part interview with Tony Reale as interesting and engaging as we did when we were sitting across the table from him. He was certainly a captivating person, and we will bring you the second part of the interview in our next episode. Now it is time for the Italian-American Stories segment of our episode, which is the part of the show where we try to bring you back to your family gatherings, conversations, and we try to play a recording or story from one of our relatives or from one of our listeners. And today we have one from one of our listeners, which we're going to share with you, which we're excited about. But before we do that, I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this segment, Select Italy. Select Italy is the ultimate source for travel to Italy and offers a wide array of superior Italian travel products and services including customized itineraries, fascinating tours, romantic getaways, unique and fun culinary classes, yacht charters, transportation, hotel reservations, villa bookings, tickets for museums and musical events, and more. All right, so one of our listeners, Stephanie Picone. Stephanie, thank you so much. She sent in just a beautiful recording of a story from her family that I really think you're going to enjoy. Here it is. It was a hot July afternoon in the summer of 1981. I watched my son playing stickball in the street, the same street I played in when I was a child. Most of the people that lived on that block were living under the same roof with three generations. Mrs. Fawcy was sitting on her stoop and she called me over to sit with her. She was a permanent fixture in her block. She was a tiny lady of about 80 years of age and was one of the few older ladies in Canarsie who could speak English pretty well. After a few minutes, she asked me, ever tell you about my angel? I told her no, and she happily proceeded to tell me the most precious story. One night, when my kids were small, I cry myself to sleep, I pray out to God. I say, why are you giving me these kids? I cannot feed them. Tomorrow, I wake up and I see their little faces, and I got nothing to put in their belly. Please, God, help me. 
The next morning, I look out to the window and I see something on the stoop. I say, what this is? I go outside there and I find all kinds of vegetables and eggs. Beautiful vedruna and egg. I say to myself and my husband, we got a miracle. God hear my prayer. He sent you the food. Well, they no last forever. And when I cook the last meal from this beautiful package, I say to myself, now what are I going to do, God? The next morning I look outside and the same thing. More beautiful verdune and fruit and egg. Now I say, I got to meet this angel so I could thank him. So I get up really early the next morning, but it was too late. The food was there already. So each day I wake up earlier and earlier to catch him. And always I am too late. I say, that's it, I'm not going to sleep. I wait up all night for this angel. As I sit by my window in the dark, sipping my coffee, around 2.30 in the morning, I see somebody coming down the block, pull a little wagon. <gasps> my heart leaps and I say, it's my angel. When my angel comes close enough to see, I realize who it is. Who? Who? I ask her. Your grandma, Santa Conchata. I could never tell you what it meant to me to hear that story. I never met my grandmother because she died before I was born. I had a fascination with this woman that I was named after, but never knew. Now I felt I gained some insight into her character. Not only did she give abundantly, but she gave in secret so that she could spare her friend her pride. She knew that it would embarrass her to accept the food openly. She made the sacrifice to forego her much-needed rest after tending to her own eight children. She knew not to let her left hand know what her right hand had given. She knew to whom much is given, much is required. Realizing that since they had a tiny farm, when most people had little yards in Brooklyn, she would be expected to share, and share she did. Maybe she was an angel. She certainly sounded like one to me. All right, so I hope you enjoyed Stephanie's beautiful story. I hope you enjoyed the first part of our two-part interview with Tony Reale. And to leave us here, I want to just recognize our sponsor once again for this segment, and then Dolores will take us out and let you know how you can connect with us. Everything you need for optimum travel to Italy is possible with Select Italy. Their helpful travel planners in Chicago, New York, and Shanghai are always ready to give the best advice on when and where to visit, while the Florence support staff is there to help should you need anything while you're actually in Italy. The company recently expanded its offerings and services to the Balkans with the launch of Select Croatia. Visit selectitaly.com and selectcroatia.com. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Italian American Podcast. Please go to italianamericanpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter and you will get new episodes delivered to your inbox and also be the first to know about new resources we are creating for Italian Americans. Again, that's italianamericanpodcast.com. All right, Dolores, take us out. So, uh, Michi, you can let us know you're listening and loving the show by, of course, leaving us a review on iTunes and also by joining us on social media. We are at Instagram at Italian American, Twitter at Ital American, I-T-A-L American, and Facebook at Italian American Podcast. Felice estate!